Hi, everyone. This is Steve Smith and Rich Young from Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner, and welcome to our podcast. Today, we're talking about uh, sponsorship and marketing and more broadly on where the money that funds the Olympic movement comes from. Rich, you want to give us a quick overview of what that looks like? Yeah, let's start at the top. Um, from the last summer games and winter games, the IOC's revenue was about $5.7 billion. Uh, a lot of that went to putting on the games and subsidizing the local organizing committee for the games. Another part of that goes to special events that the IOC does, like the Youth Olympic Games and solidarity programs and the like. Uh, about $750 million gets split between, is given to the international federations, and they split that based on a formula. Uh, athletics and swimming and gymnastics are at the top of that formula pyramid. And then another $750 million or so goes to the National Olympic Committees. National Olympic Committees have uh, private donations. A lot of them have government support, but let's just talk about the U.S. right now. They don't have, U.S. Olympic Committee doesn't have government support. It has donations. It has some television rights. It has money from the IOC uh, and other revenue. And then it makes distributions uh, largely performance-based, and you can talk more about that, uh, to the national governing bodies. And when you get down to the national governing bodies, their sources of revenue include membership, which for some of them is like swimming, for example, is a, is a large source, uh, and USOPC money, and sponsorships. So... Uh, why don't, you've done sponsorship deals for... Um, you don't have to mention the number of years, Richard. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to think the, num the number of national governing bodies, but, but either somewhere between most or a lot. Yeah, so uh, obviously sponsorship is a very important uh, lifeblood for national governing bodies. Uh, you know, they, they do get revenues from the USOPC, but I think... Uh, some, especially the larger NGBs, don't rely very heavily on that, uh, and and so sponsorships become a very big part of what they do. And so let's talk a little bit about how the sponsorships work. One of the hardest issues in in the whole process is understanding what is an NGB you can do and you can't do because you have a few organizations over you that you have to work. Uh, within the framework that they provide. So take uh, a USA Swimming or any other national governing body. You have at the top of the pyramid, if you will, is the IOC, which controls the Olympics, the Olympic rings, and the like. And then uh, below the IOC but above uh, an NGB, you have their international federation, which governs their sport across the world, and they have their rights within the sport and with international events involving that sport. And then you have the National Olympic Committee, in this case the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and they have license rights from the International Olympic Committee to use the rings, 
the term Olympics, the games, things like that in their particular country, so in this case the United States. And within that framework, then you have the national governing bodies who can grant sponsorships but have to make sure that you don't infringe on any of those things. So it becomes very important for a sponsor to understand that if I happen to become a sponsor of USA Basketball, it does not give me the right to promote myself as an Olympic sponsor or to use the rings or something like that. Uh, it also, you know, the intellectual property becomes a big part of this because sponsors want to be associated with all the goodwill of the Olympics. You know, you see these great stories on the television screen every two years, and you want to be associated with it. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to, to do that with the International Olympic Committee, but that costs a heck of a lot of money. So one way to do that is to be involved with the USA Swimming or USA Badminton or whoever it might be. And so understanding what rights can be granted becomes really important. And a lot of those tend to become focused on uh, working uh, with and, and promoting events of uh, the NGB. You know, they'll have national championships. They'll have other events that they do. So you can get a lot of exposure from that. Some of those end up on TV, and so you get even more exposure when it's on TV. Um, and, uh, you know, the ability to access the membership. I mean, some NGBs have membership in the hundreds of thousands or even in the millions for some of the very largest. Uh, you know, if you're a business, to be able to uh, communicate directly with a million or more potential customers can be really huge and be very valuable. And so that becomes an important right in a sponsorship. And then obviously these, uh, these are very complicated agreements, dozens of pages long. But one thing that's become really much of the focus in the last year is what happens when something goes wrong? What happens if you have a worldwide pandemic that means you can't put on the uh, national championships in your sport. How does that work? What does the sponsor get? You know, does the sponsor get to terminate the agreement and pull out? Uh, or if not, what are they, are they able to uh, get the same event, uh, the benefits in another year, maybe the next year, or are they expecting a refund of some of the money that they've paid? All of those things have to be addressed in a contract, as well as just trying to think through any other problems that may come up over the course of a, you know, what, what often is a four-year deal but can be longer, can be eight years, can be 12 years. A lot changes in 12 years. I mean, you think back, we're in 2021, and, you know, in the early 2000s, there really wasn't a whole lot of social media. And, you know, think about how much that's impacted the world now. So how do you uh, take advantage of that as a sponsor and what happens if you can't? So all, all of those are the kind of issues that NGBs end up having to, to think through and to deal with in their sponsorships. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on ambush marketing. Um, that has always struck me as one of the more interesting parts of the sponsorship game because the, the non-sponsors who want to profit off their exposure during the event can be really creative. When when I was an arbitrator at the Sydney Games, I was at a volleyball competition, and a Chinese electronic company, it was China versus somebody, it was hot, it was really hot in inside, it was indoor volleyball, and a Chinese electronic company had given fans, you know, the the fans out to the spectators 
Well, when you opened up the fan, it was an advertisement for an electronics company <laughs> that was a competitor of one of the IOC sponsors. You know? yeah. I mean, really, really great creative stuff, but it significantly impacts the economics of what somebody paid many, many millions of dollars to get. That's, what, that's how, right. How, how have you dealt with that as uh, as a guy who works with sponsors? You know, it, it's it, it that's one of the issues that keeps everybody up late at night, I think, you know, thinking through how to stop that because uh, if you're the IOC and you're getting tens of millions of dollars from a sponsor, the last thing you want is somebody to be able to spend tens of thousands of dollars to get exposure through the Olympics, which has, you know, billions of viewers. Uh, you know, I'll share one of my one of my stories that I, I always thought was a really clever way of ambush marketing. It was at the uh, World Cup, the Soccer World Cup, when it was in South Africa, and a uh, I believe it was a, a um, Netherlands uh, beer company, beer brewing company that was known by its color orange. It was part of their a big part of their their logo and their marketing. They hired a, a bunch of models who walked into stadiums in long coats, but underneath that they were wearing orange dresses. And at an appointed time, they all took off their coats, and it drew a lot of attention to see, you know, 24 beautiful women in these orange dresses, and it got a lot of TV and a lot of coverage. Well, of course, FIFA, the international governing body, was very upset because they have a beer sponsor, and they didn't want somebody taking advantage of the exposure from that. And so they tried to come down very hard on that, which then, including having several of the women who, uh, you know, wore the, the dresses being arrested and having to appear before the courts in South Africa, which kind of backfired because then it, number one, led to more attention on them and what happened, and then number two, drew a lot of sympathy around the world to these poor women who were just, you know, were doing their job and now are, you know, having to spend a night in, in jail uh, and so, it, you know, it, it actually just furthered the ambush marketing aspect of that. So, uh, I think you, you know, as a as a uh, a property, you need to make sure that your sponsors know that you're going to stand up for them and you're going to do whatever you can to shut things down. Uh, and you know, so you'll certainly be policing your event, making sure that you don't see anything out there that you can stop. Uh, but at the same time, you, you also have to make wise decisions and sort of think them through. And I think the FIFA example is a good one where by coming down maybe a little too hard, which is understandable, and that's what your sponsor wants, that's what you want to do to protect your brand, you end up you know, giving the ambush marketer more exposure than you ever ever hoped. So it's a, it's a delicate balance for sure, but always a very interesting one. Great. Should we talk to Tim? Yeah, that sounds great. So, Tim, a pretty open-ended question. Where does swimming's money come from? Uh, yeah, no, great question. And, again, I think one of the things coming from the private sector to now at NGB, I, you know, I enjoy the fact that we get to be transparent about all of our financials. So, so great question. So, for us, and, I, and I'd like to talk pre-COVID, if I may. Pre-COVID, we were about 63 to 65% of our revenues were coming from membership across the spectrum of the USA Swimming. So, of the 400,000 members of the 3,000 uh, member clubs, 60, about 63% I came through our membership, uh, membership fees, right? Uh, beyond that, there's two other big blocks. Block number one would be sponsorship and about 12 to 15% of our revenue will come through corporate sponsorship, uh, from a USA Swimming perspective and our partners. 
And then another, you know, 12% or so would come from the USOPC in high performance grants. And then the rest is kind of miscellaneous opportunities that come to USA Summit for the e-commerce and some other, uh, some other small uh, grants and so forth that come across our desk. But the three big buckets are really membership, sponsorship, and the USOPC high performance. Does swimming get any money from the International Federation FINA? We can apply to some grants. They're, they're not very large that help us with some of our volunteer travel, some of our officials travel, uh, some of our, our some athlete grants uh, for some travel and those type of things, but nothing from a true revenue stream that we can count on uh, every single year. And, and with COVID and everything, how has that affected the money that we get from uh, USOPC? So the USOPC has maintained their high performance uh, level uh, incomes and revenues to us, which has been really, really important. And I think that's why, you know, we have a great chance to be successful here again in Tokyo and why I think that even now that we're down to a three-year quad, if you will, going to Paris, you know, we should be in good shape from a high performance perspective for our national team athletes and a perspective Olympic athletes. Uh, you know, where, 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 where we really took a hit, uh, Rich, was really in the membership side of things. And we were down about – 30% overall from a membership perspective. We've lost nearly that much in clubs. We're down to about 2,700 clubs. There are certainly still current uh, good standing members of USA Swimming, primarily from access to facilities and water. The reality was COVID not only did it discourage people from doing a lot of things, even though swimming was safe, and we proved that very early on with our partnership with the CDC, the reality is a lot of our major facilities are on college and high school campuses. And those institutions and those local governments were far more conservative and restrictive than some other community opportunities. So that really, that was really difficult. We created an aquatics coalition, uh, that we led starting probably in about May of, uh, of 2020. Uh, Shana Ferguson, our chief commercial officer took the lead here and we rallied the other aquatic engineers. We rallied, uh, other institutional partners within aquatic sports. We got corporate partners. We got pool builders and manufacturers. We got medical personnel. And we worked together to get some PR, some PR help, to work with the CDC, to partner with the CDC, and find ways to get the message out that it's safe to swim. And then we came up with guidelines, and we worked those guidelines all the time and utilized our web services, and we funded all of it on behalf of all 25 aquatic uh, coalition partners. And so, Tim, when talking about sponsorship, when uh, you know, typically an, an NGB sponsorship will be for four years you know, to, to run through the Olympics, how did the postponement of Tokyo to 2021, how did that impact USA Swimming and how did it work now suddenly having a five-year quad? And then how do you, and then we'll talk about a three-year quad in a minute. Now you bet. Uh, another good question. <clears throat> the, the reality was we're very blessed. We have phenomenal uh, blue chip brands that have invested in USA Swimming for a long period of time. So when you look at, you know, Toyota, you look at Xfinity, Comcast Xfinity, you look at Marriott, you look at our endemics and an arena tier and speedo, uh, just, just phenomenal partners across the board. The larger ones to your point that are typically in that quad, quadrennial type of commitment are the endemics in particular. And again, when you're in a position where you're supposed to be helping them sell suits and helping them sell their products, uh, and the pools are closed, it becomes challenging. When they're here to support our largest events, Olympic trials, uh, some of our other national events, our tier pro series, anything that happens across uh, and we can't have those events because of COVID, we need to be flexible. And I think we decided to be very upfront, transparent, and we did not expect anyone to have to pay their rights fees at the same level, knowing that we weren't going to be able to deliver on all those type of assets and activations. So 
We sat with them all individually. We worked a plan with both of them. We told them we were confident that Olympic trials was going to take place. And in this case, going, you know, going back to the wave one, wave two kind of concept that took place, wave one also allowed us to do some make goods. We got Olympic channel to cover wave one. So we had more television inventory to help our partners out. We had another chance to activate within the city. So the good news is we had some make goods that, that made that relationship feel better. But overall, we took a hit because we didn't expect them. And their one year, what would have been their one year commitment in 2020, we spread it over two years. And that was the right thing to do, I think, with partners. The good news or the silver lining that did take place was uh, we found that as we started to turn the corner, as we became leaders in our voice, and, and we were confident that we were going to deliver our events, we were confident that swimming was going to be safe, we knew our athletes were going to be ready for trials. We have quite a few new deals that came in this year, I, I, albeit one-year deals, which to your point is not traditional, but we had to do it, right? We needed the opportunities. It was great to have these, you know, we had the Air, we had Air Force, we had Beckham Dickinson, uh, you know, we had Vic. We had some great brands that also wanted to come in and help us. And the reality was they're, they're one-year deals. So hopefully we'll leverage those and, and we'll, we'll find a way to show the value this year so that we can extend them forward. But those were really you know, important to us to get that kind of new revenue in to kind of offset some of the losses that we had uh, over COVID. So when you do hit something like a COVID, how important is the, the personal relationship with the sponsors in working through those kind of issues? It's the most critical factor, Steve. And I think that, you know, philosophically, and I can only speak for my four years, but going back to my 20 plus years in professional sports where most of my time was spent commercially and the majority of my career started in sponsorship sales and, and activation. Uh, that's the most important thing. And that's my, if I'm talking to groups or talking to college kids or, or potential prospects to join us, it's all about relationships. It's about people. And I think when we go up and we, we have a great relationship with somebody and we're honest with them, we're transparent. We talk about each other's business objectives and how we can make partnerships work. Then when the tough times hit, uh, to your question, you know, we're, they're willing to listen. They're not going to jump to a conclusion that we just need to stop or we need to cut or, you know, we, we have great dialogue. We have great conversations. And I'll be honest, it's another kind of silver lining with all the, we all joke about Zooms, right? But at least even right now, looking at you guys, I know we're recording this, but like the fact that I get to see you guys, see your ex- facial expressions, that's important. And that's, that's part of that human quality when building relationships and maintaining relationships. So I think at a USA Swimming, we will always take relationship uh, and term over investment. And, you know, again, I, I don't want to advertise it too far because we want to drive big sales dollars, but we're easy to work with. And I think that that's going to help us in time. And I think people stick with us because of it. Steve, can, um, Tim, can you explain uh, how it works with the IOC having their list of top sponsors, the USOC has their sponsors, and then swimming has its sponsors. What, how does all that work? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's really the, the time when it becomes most interesting and more complicated is around the Olympic year, right? Because that's really when the payoff is for all these major partners. So whether you're an IOC partner, you're not doing as much. I mean, there's probably some, events around the world that they get they get to, you know, the television broadcast or they get different events that they probably get to activate, if you will, over those four years. Similarly, you know, there are some events that the USOPC puts on, Pan Am Games and some other competitions and television events that they can still activate. But ultimately, the big payoff for those two entities is really around the Olympics and the Olympic trials in an Olympic year. For us, from an NGB perspective, we have events every year, no matter what, right? So at all levels, from you know our major junior events, our regional events, 
our, uh, our national events, junior nationals, uh, Phillips 66 nationals. Um, you know, we look at, uh, you know, our Toyota US Open. I mean, we're, we're doing events, our tier approachers every single year. So our partners are looking to invest with us and gain value and, and, and get equity from our international, our intellectual property and our activation assets every single year, not just the Olympic year. Now, Olympic trials does take it to another level, so that's another payoff as well. So the only time we really get in conflict is really that Olympic year. And in many cases, a lot of the U.S., I'll just speak mostly to the USOPC partners because we, we have more experience with them on a local level. There are many that we, uh, you know, that we, that are, uh, we work with together. So Toyota and Comcast Xfinity are two examples where if they're going to invest at the level they do with the USOPC, they're going to want to make sure they secure the rights for some of the top NGBs and access to those athletes and access to some of our activities to lead up to, to that payoff, right, to that potential return on investment or return on objective that they may have based on our partnership. So it's complex, but we all seem to work together. And then conversely, there are chances when, as an example, you know, United this year, you know, got to extend through 2021, even though the LA 2020 people had signed Delta a year ago, thinking that the Olympics would be over by now. And so for us, as Delta takes over for the next quad plus to LA, we may want to still work with United Airlines. They've been a phenomenal partner for USA Swimming, and we would be allowed to do that if that's the case. Great. Tim, one of the things that, you know, the next, as soon as we get through this Olympics, now we're faced with really a condensed Olympic schedule and that, you know, now you've got less than a year later, you'll have the 22 games in Beijing and less than three years from now, we'll have the Olympics in Paris. How does that impact, first of all, USA Swimming, you know, having such a condensed schedule? And then how do you see it impacting the Olympic movement in general? So the USOPC and the IOC? Yeah, again, uh, great questions. I, I'd start with us first of all. I mean, condensed for us, I mean, in fact, we had a meeting on Monday about this and looking at our event schedules, domestic events to international events. If I start with the international events over the next three years, because of COVID, we're going to have four world championship events, two 50-meter course and two 25-meter course events in less than 24 months, right? So so we get through Tokyo. We go to uh, uh, Abu Dhabi for short course worlds this December. We go back to Japan and Fukuoka next spring for long course world championships. That winter, we go back to Kazan, Russia in December 22 for short course worlds. Then we come into 23, we go to Doha in the fall for world championships and Santiago, Chile for Pan Am. So the amount of major competitions, and I'm not I'm talking about World University Games, I'm talking about Junior World Championships, Pan Pacific. So it's condensed. It's going to be hectic, and, and it'll be challenging. We'll get it done because, again, going back to our roster of athletes and the depth we have, the silver lining is what a great opportunity. We might be able to get more young athletes chances to compete at higher level than we've ever done. One example of that is this coming fall, Junior Worlds was, was moved. It was postponed for a year. We have a junior national team that is part of our secret sauce to our success that we talk about development. Well, we made the decision. We're going to send them to the FINA World Cups this fall, right, and give them that international experience, which we've never done before. So we will find adjustments and opportunities to give athletes a chance to compete and for us a chance to be out there in the forefront, which then gets us back to our commercial partners, and we have to show them, hey, we're going to be busy. Come along for the ride. It's going to be exciting. We're going to do more events for you at a higher level, more televised events, more activations than we've ever done before in a short period of time. And hopefully that gets them very interested as they see the payoff in Paris and the Olympic trials in 2024. Well, Steve, that was a lot of fun. Tim Hinchy was great. 
thanks to everyone who is listening, and we invite you to join us on our next podcast.